0: But strangely enough, the idea for this episode came because Reddit likes to show me links to unexplained disappearances. I had come across enough of these, I could have done an episode entirely by myself, <laughs> and I thought, well, I've got enough of these saved up, let's do an episode about them. So we have collected here, we're going to do what we call an anthology episode, where we talk about still unexplained disappearances, people who have seemingly vanished off the face of the earth and never to be found again.
1: From a child born into this world, we are taught what to believe. Closed-minded, we become fearful to be deceived. Still, we desire to know what lies beyond that locked door. The art of the storyteller, conjuring tales of legend and lore. History hidden, lost knowledge, things forgotten, and the unknown. These are the things that direct us and will set the tone. Welcome, friends, to another episode of... Nightmares on the Lost Highway. Now you guys might remember back on our podcast uh, number 34, we actually did an episode on the national park vanishings. So I think uh, we both kind of tried to stay clear of that for the most part. We, we took it mostly outside of the national parks, but you know- that alone is, fascinating with how many national park vanishings there are i still think there's another
0: episode or two just in some of the really weird stories oh we can do with
1: that one easily
0: and yeah a lot of the unexplained disappearances that came up were were you know missing 411 disappearances but still a lot of the ones that i found were, were completely different and then a lot of them supposedly could be explained with Alien abduction, which is what I found the hard way. I didn't read a lot of these articles ahead of time. I just had these links. I I I'm a Reddit guy, Reddit, you know, being a social media platform, it kinda aggregates a bunch of links and it's a big message board where people talk about all these things. And so all these unexplained disappearances would just pop up in my Reddit feed. I follow a bunch of, you know, weird, like you know, unexplainable subreddits. What? When did that start? Yeah. (laughs) So a lot of what we talk about, like I end up, you know, they're topics I stumble upon, but I had so many saved reddit posts about unexplained disappearances i thought man we need to really we've got i've got enough material here that we we could absolutely do something with it and so like i said i proposed the idea and and we sat down and we collected a few stories for my my first unexplained disappearance i have the story of carl robert dish now carl robert dish was a 26 year old ionospheric physicist he joined the staff at boulder laboratories in 1964 and, and while he was working there, he was asked to join an expedition to Antarctica at, at Bird Station. Uh, Bird Station is located about 600 miles from the South Pole. So in Carl's mind, he decides, I'm going to go ahead and accept this before it's forced upon me. The idea was he figured if he didn't pick it, it's, it's going to be on make my it it terms, anymore. not theirs. And so this was going to be a six-month assignment, which I have to assume the six months in the
1: Antarctic is going to be rough. Yeah, yeah. Not, not a vacation paradise.
0: So while there he spent most of his time working in the Central Propagation Laboratory which required him to work many long hours in the radio noise building. Now the radio noise building was little more than a hut located about 7000 feet from the main complex. So I mean that's, that's a good walk especially under the conditions under those conditions? Antarctic weather. The two locations were connected by a hand line, uh, which is basically just a rope that's kind of threaded through some posts to help guide researchers during the harsh weather. If you've ever seen the movie The Thing they used handlines to move between buildings. Because your building.
1: visual perspective is is maybe a few feet in in some instances. Well, the phrase
0: snow blind, you know, when the the light hits the the snow, you can't hardly see anything. So Carl had made this trip multiple times. He's familiar with the terrain. You know, this this was his job. He was doing this on a daily basis. However, on the morning of May 8th of 1965, he would leave the radio noise building and never be seen again. Somehow, Carl got lost in the frozen Antarctic during the trip back to the main facility. 7,000 feet. Seven thousand feet with a handline. With clothed. a handline. Now the wind was blowing that, that day, and the temperature was recorded as low as negative forty four Fahrenheit.
1: Burr. That's so, cold. That's cold. That's
0: cold. Now he was fully geared in Antarctic clothing, so he should have had adequate protection. He shouldn't have succumbed to the elements in that point in time. And the trip normally would not have taken more than thirty minutes. When he had not reached the complex by ten AM, his colleagues became concerned. They organized a search party. And and, you know, they went out, they went between the buildings, they kind of followed the hand line to see what they could find.
1: So the hand line's there. obviously still it's there. It's still there, still intact.
0: They do, at about 11 o'clock, they find a set of footprints near the radio noise building at the bottom of the ladder that's attached to the hut. So I guess they use a the ladder to get in and out. They find footprints. They, there's
1: evidence that Carl was here. Which but, would lead to, say, it's pretty recent. Otherwise, yeah. you would think snow or wind would drift them over.
0: And instead of heading south towards the main building, however, along the hand line, these footprints head out west, away from the facility. So they search out. They follow the trail. They go for about four miles. It leads them to the southwest corner of the station's outer perimeter, where the footprints suddenly stop. Just has come to an end. Hmm. Now, the tracks appeared purposeful, suggesting that Carl was not lost or confused. They were in a straight line. They didn't wonder. They didn't veer. There was no evidence that he had fallen or anything like that. Didn't
1: seem disoriented, yeah. you know, weaving, he, he he was a walking, drunk guy kind of thing or nothing was, like that. Yeah, he
0: was walking a straight trail. So after that, they, they needed to return to base to refuel their vehicles, and after refueling, they moved back out to pick up where they had left off, and performed a three-hour-long search of the area, found no evidence of Carl anywhere. Eventually, they decided to head back, because the th- winds had picked up, and they were blowing at about 30 knots, and of course, that made their trip extremely difficult. They finally got back to base about 6.15 p.m. that night, and at this point, they undertook an extensive search of the facility, uh, as well as their emergency Jamesway. Now... An emergency James way means nothing to you. I nothing to me. Puzzled look on my face. Uh, an emergency James way is a portable hut that is easy to assemble and designed for survival in Arctic weather.
1: Okay, so, so emergency, emergency tent. Hut. Emergen- yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay.
0: At that point, they also searched the fuel dump, basically everywhere they could search that was indoors. At this point, no sign of Carl. Still no sign of Carl anywhere. So about an hour or so later, a they the team assembled and they formed a human chain to search the route between the buildings along the hand line. Once again, you know, the, this trail that leads from the base, and then they went out to where his footprints disappeared. So they were going to search these areas that they, they had, basically, they're going to search again where they've already searched. They're going to be more thorough. You know, they're, like I said, they formed this human chain, this, this linked up group of people. So they're, they're going to... They, they're doing pretty much the most encompassing kind well, of sweep they and, can.
1: And often in these strange disappearance cases, we, we've, we've come across this before in our research for podcasts. They go back to the same areas that they checked. There was nothing. And sometimes then all of a sudden they find something and they say, well, we were, we were already here. We've looked for all this. How did we miss it the first time? So despite the difficult weather conditions, they
0: set up floodlights and they lit flares. The intentions of this was both to help illuminate their search, but also to light up the camp in case Carl was still out there to say, hey, okay, we're here. And if you're lost, you know. So they they light this place up the best they can under the circumstances because, again, it's Arctic,
1: it's night. Well, again, with the 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 starch white snow, I would think the light would really cast and reflect.
0: So they searched that night until the visibility became so poor that even the lights and the flares were rendered useless by the weather. They couldn't even even see in in the light. You know, they had floodlights and stuff, and they couldn't even see. So the following day, they began a third search party using vehicles outside the base and, and tried to find Carl again. And sometimes they would find unblemished tracks moving in a southwestern direction. So they found like a continuation of his trail, but by then the weather had wiped out some of them and they couldn't follow the the reason. Even that trail, they they followed it as far as they could and it disappeared about four miles southwest of the radio noise building. So he made it a good distance, but again, those tracks just suddenly disappeared. 2 days after Carl's disappearance, yet another extensive search has started. This time 8 men, 2 vehicles, they take a Jamesway, supplies and fuel with them. They're they're, you know, out there for the long haul. They're going to find him. They begin at the main complex, moving to the south and make perpendicular sweeps to the east and west. I mean, they're covering just they're as much of the entire as they can. area, yeah. They mark their progress with flags so they they know where they've been, where they're going. However, despite searching 12 miles beyond the perimeter of the station, still no no sign of Carl. On May 12th, 1965, the northeast and southwest sectors of Bird Station were completely searched. And although the weather was favorable, darkness had set in and it kind of limited their ability to search. Now, during the next two days, harsh winds and fog made it nearly impossible to conduct any operations whatsoever outside the buildings. In total, by May 14th, 35 square miles had been as thoroughly searched as possible. Wow. No sign of
1: Carl. Now, again, Carl's a fit man younger guy i think i think you may have said like mid-twenties yeah 26 so not like he was an elderly gentleman well, i was gonna say we can, we can only or... speculate
0: as to his physical health but yeah 26 he should have been in, in decent shape lord knows i was in much better shape oh, Same yeah. into that me too well they never found any sign of carl and carl was eventually presumed dead a service was held by his friends and family at home while another was held there at bird station by his colleagues. But the question, of course, is why did Carl deviate from the usual route and what caused him to vanish? Now, a number of theories have been proposed over the year. One is, of course, that Carl was overwhelmed by the weather. Uh, When he had left the radio noise building, there was a combo of fierce winds, poor visibility, and, of course, the white landscape. He could have lost his sense of direction and just wandered off in the wrong direction.
1: But, again, he had done this trip multiple, many, many, many
0: times. And, of course, once you're off by just a short distance, It'd be hard to find your way back if you were blinded by the wind and all that. Now, the fact that he did walk in a straight line for about four miles and his tracks don't seem to indicate that he was wondering in any way does seem to contradict that particular theory. There's another theory that says that maybe Carl suffered from some sort of mental breakdown. It said that he'd been cheated during a card game just moments before his disappearance. Supposedly, he threw his cards down on the table and told everybody, you know, kind of shortly, like, I'm going out to visit my friends at the South Pole and just like put on his gear and, and left. Of course, the, the nature of the terrain, some say it could have broken him down mentally while he was walking away to clear his thoughts, but they also say a man with his experience in the environment should have known better. Pursuing such actions would have been suicidal, like to wander away from camp and lose your, your sense of direction. This isn't the kind of place where you just walk away to clear your head. You yeah, know? Yeah. Some argue that since the footsteps just stopped suddenly, that Carl has, was, just vanished. Now, Several members of the search party did report seeing unusual lights and hearing strange noises in the area before and after Carl's disappearance. But, you know, when you're at that kind of level of freezing, you know, the ground does make strange noises and there are strange lights sometimes in the sky just because of the environment. So, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. again, they they felt these lights and sounds were unusual, that they weren't natural. But, you know, again, they could have been. And another strange fact is that it was reported that Carl's Husky was claimed to have gone missing just a few days later, but that was never officially confirmed. So whether his dog ran off or not, no one really knows, but supposedly his dog did disappear. Now, one thing that people don't really delve into, but it's a possibility, maybe the Soviet Union was involved. Again, this is rarely considered, but there is a story similarly of a British Royal Navy commander who was attached to a survey group in Antarctica who disappeared during the Cuban Missile Crisis under similar circumstances. Uh, As as details emerged about the story as it unfolded, it turned out that this man had secretly been working for the Soviet Union, and he was picked up by the Soviet Union before his cover could be blown. Now, Carl's occurrence did occur during the Cold War, and as a specialist in his field, he would have been a valuable asset. And he did volunteer for the job. He did volunteer for the, the, the assignment. Now, the theory could explain the strange lights and sounds. It could have been vehicles coming to retrieve him.
1: It could have veered off to go meet those yeah. vehicles. Yeah.
0: The the only place that this loses any credibility is that the amount of distance between Bird Station and the coastline would have been very difficult for someone to land there, send vehicles in to pick him up, but not impossible. And again, you do have a past precedent for that with this Royal Navy commander who disappeared. So hmm. not to say it's impossible, but coincidence. Hmm. So again, um, I mean, if you've seen the movie, The Thing, I, I would feel. That's probably the closest a lot of us are going to get to exposure to the Antarctic environment. But yeah, those guys, absolutely you you can tell by watching that movie. You don't wander around outside. Yeah, especially that is not a friendly in, place, especially in snow conditions and wind and whatnot. You're you're not going to survive. So, so what happened to Mister Dish? Who knows? He just vanished without a trace. He's never been found.
1: Interesting. All right. Well, I'm going to dive into my first story, and it's a, it's a pretty lengthy one. And I wanted to go back in time a little bit to. What I considered probably one of the earlier best documented cases, at least the, that I had at my disposal. And that is the one of the Solder Children disappearance. It was Christmas Eve, 1945. Fayetteville, West Virginia was the site. Now, Christmas. What's not to love about Christmas? That festive time of year filled with the aroma of fresh baked goodies. Well,
0: I'm guessing something bad for this
1: family. It didn't turn out so pleasant for this family. Yeah, just, just pull off the Band-Aid bill and ruin the entire story here.
0: Well, <laughs> I mean, we're talking about unexplained disappearances, Eric. I don't,
1: I don't think I'm, I don't, hopefully I've not spoiled anything <laughs> here. Well, there was a father by the name of George Soder. Now, he was a successful businessman, and together with his wife, Jeannie, they looked over a, what we would consider a middle-class family of the time of 10 children. No easy task today, but uh, definitely not during the the World War II era. Uh, You can imagine it wasn't any easier. Now, nine of the ten children were at home this night, along with, of course, mom and dad. Only the 21-year-old boy named Joseph was away from the house, and he was actually serving his country in the army at the time. So we have 12-year-old Martha, an 8-year-old Jenny, and a 5-year-old Betty, the three youngest daughters. They were playing with gifts actually given to them by their oldest sister, Marion, who was 17. So we got the kids all kind of strung out here all the way actually into the mid-20s to the youngest at like maybe two years old. Now, after all the festivities of the day, Christmas Eve, mom, Jenny, father, George, as well as their sons, which was 23-year-old John and a 16-year-old George Jr., all prepared to retire for bed for the evening. Now, the three youngest daughters that I had mentioned had begged their mom uh, at approximately 10 p.m. to please let them stay up past their normal bedtimes and just continue to play with their new toys that they'd got from their oldest sister, which she agreed. But only if the two older boys, 14-year-old Maurice and 9-year-old Louis, would finish the final farm duties uh, for the family of the evening, which they agreed upon. Now, at that time, Mother Jenny took the youngest daughter sylvia to bed who was just a couple years old at about twelve thirty a.m mother jenny heard the downstairs phone ring obviously it's late in the night she's concerned with what's going on so she throws her robe on goes down the steps to answer it on the other end she hears multiple people laughing kind of the chiming of what could be like wine glasses and a toast kind of a party atmosphere and
0: i mean this is when, when, what was the date on this? 1945.
1: So this was definitely like
0: the date of the, the time of party lines and thing. Oh yes. So oh
1: yes. And World War Two had literally just closed a few well, months before.
0: And, and I feel like
1: we we should probably explain the idea of a some party people line. may not understand party. We're not meaning partying.
0: <laughs> yeah. No the the idea of course being that that phone lines used to be like sequential basically, and everybody on like the same street would be on the same phone line essentially so you could just literally pick up the phone and if your neighbor was having a conversation you, you just would just be part of that conversation drop in
1: yeah just jump right in so yeah like, for the busybodies bodies of, of the area that yeah. wanted to know everything that's going so, on
0: so yeah you you basically shared a phone line the phone number if you will privacy it, was out the window <laughs> in this day and age more than likely you're listening to this on some sort of cellular device so you know that idea is completely lost to time but yeah i mean I, I do I remember, remember it growing up. I, I remember I was, hearing about it.
1: I was very young, but yeah. Uh, so anyhow, the phone rings. She goes downstairs. She hears multiple people laughing. What does sound like a party, wine glasses possibly chiming. And then after a short period of time, she hears an unknown woman's voice on the phone that she didn't recognize. And this person asks the whereabouts of another girl. And the mom, Jenny, says, I'm, I'm sorry, I, I'm not familiar with that name. I'm, I've never heard of her. I believe you may have the wrong phone number. She says there was kind of a pause, and then this unknown woman on the other end of the phone just starts laughing and then quickly hangs up. So she's wondering was it a prank call, maybe yeah, just an does, accidental that call? That does sound like a wrong number. But as she did this, she's kind of collecting her thoughts and she's thinking, well, the house is awful quiet. You know, I guess that's why, you know, my other daughter didn't answer the phone or anything. So she starts going through and she notices that there are several lights left on in the house. She notices the front door is still unlocked. She walks into the living room where she had left uh, Marion, the 17-year-old, older daughter, caring for the three. She finds Marion fast asleep on the couch, passed out, but no signs of the three younger girls. But the toys are all kind of neatly put back underneath the Christmas tree. So she's just trying to evaluate. She figures probably 17-year-old Marion conked out the girls played to their extent and went upstairs to their attic bedroom. So she's looking around. It is very odd. She mentions um, the children were all well-behaved, and they knew that anybody that stayed up, you know, these things were to be done before you went to bed. You obviously locked the front door. The curtains of the windows were open, which not only is a privacy, but at that time let a lot of cold air in. Yeah, it's funny. You say you obviously
0: locked the front door, but I grew up
1: at a point in time, and and I know you did. We didn't didn't lock our door.
0: door. So, I mean, I guess if your kids are told to, then yeah, they should. But, you know, times were different then.
1: True. Richard,
0: I, I, I barely set foot in my front yard without wanting to lock
1: the door. <laughs> yeah, these days especially. So while this was strange and not normal, she thought, well, you know what? It's it's now Christmas morning. They'd probably just got all tied up with everything and forgot it. So she dismissed it. She goes on upstairs again to try to get some sleep for the night. Uh, about thirty minutes into sleep, she hears a loud thud on the roof, which made her sit straight up in bed. It's Santa! It's Santa! Well, she hears what sounds like she later describes as a heavy rubber ball rolling off of the roof to a point where it hits like, I'm assuming like the guttering kind of clangs. And then she can even hear it hit the ground outside. And she's like, what in the world? So she kind of, she's sitting there, she's listening, nothing else. And she's so tired. She says, I just literally fall back asleep. That's weird. So yeah, definitely weird. Santa fell off the roof. Now. She goes back to sleep, and about again, another 30 minutes, she is awakened. However, this time to the vivid smell of smoke in the house. Now, I will say, while following this story, I'm like, where's the husband at during this? But apparently, with everybody here and everybody staying for Christmas Eve, the husband was with the two older boys and Jenny, the mom, had taken the young girl up, and they were in a bedroom separately. So, not the traditional cleavers where you have the husband and the wife together in the same bedroom. At least on this night, so she gets up and immediately starts, you know, letting her nose lead her to the source of the smoke. And she finds the uh, one of the rooms which has been converted to her husband's office is ablaze with fire. Smoke is bellowing out. Uh, the entire room is almost engulfed at this point in time. So, very quickly spreading and she immediately starts screaming. Uh, Her husband, George, is awoken from, sounds like, several doors down the hallway. He then wakes up the two older boys, John and George Jr., and obviously, you start doing the panic-stricken, let's account for everybody, let's get them out of the house, let's get them to safety in the front yard. Uh, She runs down the steps into the living room, where she knows uh, daughter Marion was asleep on the couch. Uh, She wakes her up, and they all begin to go and call to the other children of the family and locate, and a few of them are grabbing some you know, personal belongings, trying to save it from the fire. Now, Brother John, the older brother, is sent to go check on the kids in the attic upstairs bedroom. Now, here we get kind of some inconsistencies with the stories. Brother John originally stated to the police afterwards that he entered the upstairs attic, the siblings' rooms, and shook each one of them, awakening them successfully, and told them to quickly leave. Get out. He then, however, recanted said statement, saying, no, I I didn't actually get up the steps to the room. We had only called up, and there was no response, so I began to look for the kids elsewhere. A few little inconsistencies there. Now, Father George, Mother Jenny, uh, along with four of the children, escaped the house fire, but the remaining five other children remained to be seen. At this time, the entire house was engulfed in flames, including the downstairs living room, stairway, upstairs hallway, and the stairway to the attic, fully engulfed in flames. George and the two boys uh, managed to climb onto the first level roof, and there, Father George smashed one of the upstairs bedroom windows, slicing one of his hands and arm very badly, trying to gain access to the house to try to save and find the remaining five kids. On this first level roof, The family practiced safety, and they had a ladder that was stored on the roof that would be used for just such an emergency situation. That ladder could then be stood up on that first level roof to reach the attic. The ladder's gone. There's no sign of the ladder. Meaning you would have to have a way to get up on the roof to easily get the ladder. This was one of the weird things that just started for the night. George is now panicking. They cannot reach the attic window. But he is able to go into that level, but quickly figures out it is not safe. The floor is already starting to collapse and everything. He then panics. He gets the boys and himself off the roof, and he decides he'll take one of the farm trucks, possibly pull both of the trucks up, or at least one up against the house, put the ladder on top of that to try to reach the upstairs attic. The second occurrence happens when he goes over and he turns the key and the truck will not start. Very odd because this truck is used in his business every single day. He takes great pride in taking care of this. No problem, one of the other boys jumps over to the other truck. It also will not start. Again, panic-stricken, all of this happening in moments. They were unsure what they could do, as they literally had to watch the house collapse around them, and they assume watching their children perish in the fire. The entire house burnt to the ground, and they said a matter of 45 minutes. The house structure entirely collapsed ruins of smoke. With the World War II just ending months before, the local fire department was still very understaffed. There was also problems with the phone system that night making an emergency phone call. Instead of being able to successfully make a phone call, various members of the volunteer fire department had to use walkie-talkies that reached only a certain range to piggyback the message to try to reach the fire station not well planned out. Everything that could go wrong is going wrong. Finally, the fire department volunteers arrive on the scene with a fire truck between 7 and 9 a.m. Christmas morning. The structure had already collapsed some six hours earlier. Huge lapse of time here before anybody gets here. One story was the fire chief did receive a call on the radio. He was actually at the fire department but he reported he himself didn't know how to drive the fire truck and needed someone else to come in and help.
0: He might be the wrong guy to be in charge.
1: Wrong guy to be (laughs) in charge. You're a fire chief and you don't know how to drive your own truck. By 10 a.m., the fire chief and crew had searched the debris. He had confronted the father and the mother, and while no bones had been found, they believed all five of the young children had indeed perished in the fire. Father George and Mother Jeannie were, of course, devastated. They began to violently cry and break down, holding their other children. Days later, with a special committee constructed for the fire inspection, it was declared that the bones were most likely reduced to ash and that the cause of the fire was deemed to be due to an electrical issue in the office.
0: You know how hot a
1: fire has to be to do that? Exactly. Even when you cremate a body. A thousand degrees kind of area. Yeah, when you cremate a body. For hours. There's still bone fragments. Yes, we're going to touch on that. In the coming months and year, George and and Jeannie Sauter, the mother and father, of course, attempt to patch their lives and move forward the best they can. However, in doing so, they played out that fateful night over and over again, beating themselves up, trying to cope and to figure out a way to deal with their loss, trying to understand what they could have done differently. They quickly come across that there were just too many things that didn't add up to be a simple electrical fire. There was the fact that Mother Jenny had went down finding the door unlocked originally when she got the phone call. The curtains open on the windows, and the lights were still on in the house. Then there was the missing ladder that was stored on the roof. It had later been found tossed over an embankment some 65 feet away. There was also the fact that neither of the two farm vehicles, the large trucks, would even start that night. Oldest daughter, Marion, came forward later to state she actually ran to the neighbor's house to borrow the phone to call for help, as I'd touched upon, but the neighbor's phone only gave a busy signal. Later, to emerge was a driver in a car that passed the house that night. Thinking he possibly saw fire, he had stopped at the tavern just down the road and attempted to use their phone to call the fire department, but that phone also did not work on this night. Yet another neighbor comes forward later and claimed he actually had to drive to town himself to go to the fire station to personally inform and awake the fire chief as no one could reach him. As they continued their own investigation, it was also deduced that the phone line issue was not due to the fire, but rather it was reported to the telephone company someone had intentionally cut their main line for the entire area. I see, and you may get to this eventually, as you're talking here, and you're talking about all these things that have gone
0: and happened, and especially when you, when you get to the point where you're talking about cutting a phone wire. Like, you said the farm truck, so I'm assuming this guy's a farmer by trade.
1: He had like a towing
0: business, uh, large trucks. I mean, did he have enemies? Did he make enemies in his line of work? We're going to touch on
1: that. Okay. Someone had intentionally, as I said, cut the main lines for the entire area, leaving several miles without service that night, alluding to what Bill was saying with the old party line systems back then. Now, George was still confused about the trucks not starting they were both part of his business a towing service and a kind of a delivery on the side business he took great pride with their upkeep and they are a part of that essential business they were fine that night when he parked them he had used them both previously just earlier come to find out there had been some local burglaries around the christmas holidays in that area probably not all that uncommon burglaries often spike around christmas time but on the night of the fire a man was spotted near this home with a block and a tackle now for those of you who may not be familiar block and tackles one of those large hooks and chains might be used to pull like car motors and such he was found to have been stealing motors out of vehicles in the area now wow. yeah ironically this burglar when he was stopped and questioned did admit without questioning even he cut the lines however he insisted he thought it was power lines that he cut not phone lines i would would think cutting a phone line versus a power line would have a dramatic difference (laughs) i think you would know the difference yeah i would
0: think sparks electricity and all that but that's just me
1: Yeah, yeah the phone lines now sure that made sense so no one could call for help if he was caught but he said he thought he cut power lines The obvious thing that later came up was, why would he want to cut the power lines if he's trying to steal motors? What would he possibly gain from this? Now, then on top of all that, there was a filing error at the police department weeks later. The files concerning this block and tackle thief has never been seen since. Although the police do well remember the incident, There was just no proof of any files being made. So this burglar just vanishes without a name and no one would even know any more about it. The police were so shocked with him confessing this. They didn't even think to ask, well, why would you cut the power lines, you know, kind of deal. All of this was enough to keep George and, and Jenny engaged that something here was definitely amiss. So they continued for years to investigate and question the authorities. The fire had been recorded as an electrical short. However, George, Jenny, and the other kids remember, even as they were fleeing the house, the lights were still working. The kids even remember the Christmas tree lights still on. Now, you would think if there was an electrical short bad enough to cause a fire, maybe the lights wouldn't work. Well, I, I mean, I feel if the short's bad enough to cause a fire, that's part
0: of the problem. That's what your breaker system is supposed to do. When you have a short, it's supposed to shut off electricity. So if it causes a fire, then it's not its, faulty. it's not functioning as intended. So I can kind of maybe understand that.
1: But the office upstairs when first found was already fully engulfed. So, I mean, let's say 10, 15 minutes had passed. Regardless, the other lights of the house were still on at this point. Now, all of this weird stuff, you know, why would anyone want to do this to the Solder family? Well, it could go back to a little-known history of the Italian immigrant George Soder himself. He arrived in America as a young man and started a truck hauling business that became very successful, something that he also did in Italy before he came over. And This allowed him to marry and have the large family that we spoke about. Along with this success, Father George was quite opinionated, in particular about one of his former country's key figures, Mussolini who was befriended by Adolf Hitler during World War II. Yeah, I think you're allowed to have
0: opinions about Mussolini.
1: <laughs> However, the country, Italy, as it is implied, was torn kind of in the middle, almost equal for those that loved Mussolini, as well as equal amount for those who hated Mussolini. Now, George was very outspoken and anti Mussolini, which was something that did not set well with some of the other Italian immigrants in the area. As a matter of fact, weeks before the fire, George remembers a door-to-door insurance salesman coming to the house. He was selling life insurance and tried to get George to sign up. However, George denied him and told him, I am not interested. Please just move along. To which the insurance salesman called George out about a slander against the great leader, Mussolini, and swore This house will go up in flames, and your children will vanish as a way to punish you for your arrogant personal beliefs. Wow. So, that guy's a suspect. Ding, ding. (laughs) The salesman uh, would later be identified as one of the jury members that was involved with the cause of the fire investigation. And he, of course, voted that the fire was caused by none other than an electrical short.
0: That Mm. that seems like a conflict of interest.
1: (laughs) The two older boys, still at home uh, during this time, said they remember looking back in their upstairs bedroom window on several occasions to see a strange new model car parked across the road as if they were being watched. They didn't think a lot about it, but obviously looking back with everything happened, that was a bit odd. One local citizen came forward several weeks later saying, she saw the younger children that very night leave the blazing house and get into a similar newer model car, as the older brothers spotted and, and stated, and drive away earlier that night. Another story from a lady some 50 miles away, kind of ran a tourist shop of sorts in a small cafe, reported she had not only seen the missing children, but spoke to them and served them breakfast Christmas morning. Yet another report comes from a hotel customer in nearby Charleston stating that she saw four of the five children waiting to get on an elevator in the hallway of the hotel. They were accompanied by four adults that were very nicely dressed and were Italian who spoke English, but upon her approaching the group, they changed their conversation to Italian. She said she started to talk with the children, who reluctantly finally started opening up and speaking until one of the Italian men in, a, in particular became very irate and told the children something harsh in Italian, which caused the children to shut up immediately. Such reports fueled and continued efforts of George and Jeannie to find their children. To them, they believed somehow, some way, they were still alive, but had vanished, being covered up with the fire. They even went to the FBI asking for help, even allowed to speak with the leader, J. Edgar Hoover, about their case. He replied to them, however, he did not think he would be able to help them, but did make several of his FBI agents available to their local police, if need be, in any order to assist. Over the next several years, similar reports would trickle in from all over the United States. George himself often traveled at his own expense to go to those locations and personally question the people and interview them. Until about four years after the fire, it was August 1949, George Genie desperately decided we need to do something different. The solders spared no expense, and so they hired a professional archaeologist familiar with bones to comb through the entire burned house remains, which had been covered four days after the fire with a backhoe. A boy's vertebrae bone was found and sent to the Smithsonian Institute for further investigation. Number one, the bone was of an older boy. Number two, it had never been exposed to fire. Meaning, either it had been accidentally scooped up with the fill dirt to cover the site from nearby, or possibly someone may have planted it there to help throw off the solders. Still, the Sodders did not give up. They even erected and paid for a giant billboard in the nearby highway with photos of the missing children and offered a $10,000 personal reward. This billboard stayed up for decades. They hired private detectives who ran down many reports, but nothing really came out of it definitive. More than 20 years after the event, Mother Jenny received an envelope in the mail, mysteriously, with a photograph of a young man in his 30s. The envelope was postmarked Kentucky, but had no other distinguishing features. On the back of the photo was a handwritten note that included the name Lewis Sodder. This was one of the boys that had went missing that night. Along with a cryptic message that really didn't make any sense to any of the Sodder family, the message read, I love brother Frankie, ill boys. And then a number, A- nine oh one three two or three five was written out. George and Jenny were convinced the man in his thirties was in fact their missing son Louis, but feared to report it that they might somehow get their son in trouble by reaching out to try to make contact. Father George Sauter died the following year in nineteen sixty eight. Jenny retreated from the world, and wore the color black from the day of Christmas, that time when the fire to her very last day here on earth in mourning until 1989. The remaining Sauter children continued their parents' legacy to keep the siblings' memory alive in hopes somehow, some way, they might still be alive out there. This is all but one of the children, John Sauter, the older boy that originally claimed he shook each one of the children that night in the attic bedroom, awakening them and then later recanted, saying he never made it up to the room. He, he did not speak of that night. And each time it was brought up, he simply dodged it, saying something to the effect of, that's behind us now, let's just move on. All the remaining children have now since passed, including, lastly, Sylvia, the youngest daughter, who died in 2022. There are still many theories of what might have happened to the missing children. Number one, somehow their bones of all five simply were just reduced to ash, and they did die in that fire. Number two, the children were kidnapped because of something Father George of the past did, possibly even connected to an Italian mafia, since we really don't know what caused George to leave Italy in the first place. But if you really want to take a stretch, I suppose you can get about anything to stick when you throw it against the wall hard enough. Going back to the alleged mystery photo of what some believe was 30-year-old Lewis and the cryptic writing on the back side, part of that inscription was a number, A90132, and the words OR35. 90132 is actually a zip code for an area known as Palmero, Italy, and the letter A could mean address, followed up by the zip code Palmero. Regardless, you know, of what occurred that night, five children disappeared. Either they died in a fire, a horrific ordeal, or they were kidnapped and vanished, leaving those left behind with no closure for the rest of their lives. It has to be one of the saddest cases of very strange disappearances. And to touch base on what Bill said, Jeannie, the mom, was contacted by one of the local coroners who... I guess, observed her questioning about the bones and she came to her secretly and privately, fearful of possibly getting in trouble in her job that, hun, those bones would not have been reduced to ash. I work in this business. And as I say, did the temperatures have to get up to at least around a thousand degrees for two hours?
0: Like you said, like I said earlier, when they cremate a body, they're still bone fragments. Typically. They're still fragments. And the entire point of cremation is to reduce a body to ash. And yeah, those, those furnaces are insane. Like,
1: they're designed for That's that. a thousand plus degrees. A, a house fire, I'm told, is six to eight hundred degrees. A
0: normal fire does not generate enough heat to reduce a human body to just
1: ash. No matter how amount of, what amount of time. So, yeah. And then the fact, we're not looking for one, but we're looking for the remains of five. To the point that they there was actually another house burning uh, within weeks of that one in a in an adjacent town, where an entire family of seven perished in the fire, and they found the remains of all seven in you know, with their bones. So Sounds like he shouldn't have criticized Mussolini.
0: Yeah. So I have the story of a Taiwanese mother and her young daughter who suddenly disappeared without a trace. Now, I will say this story when I read through it as I as I present it here. Uh, it is strangely similar to the case of Eliza Lamb, who we've talked about previously on our episode about the Hotel Cecil. I mean, there's a lot of weird, strangely similar details. So, so on January 30th, 2008, a 37-year-old woman, fair warning, these are Taiwanese names, so I'm probably going to make, I mean, I'm going to say them wrong, Then I, you know, I apologize in advance. But a 37-year-old woman named Liu and her four-year-old daughter uh, both went to the Yanlin Financial Building in Zhenghua, Taiwan. Uh, They both entered an elevator there, only to never be seen again. This disappearance was apparently big news in Taiwan at the time. When I did search for this, I did find multiple articles. Uh, Unfortunately, most of them were in I'm going to assume Taiwanese. Whatever you know, I'm assuming they speak Taiwanese. I I didn't. My my resources were somewhat limited. of Information
1: from those. Yeah.
0: So, according to the building manager, it was late at night when they arrived, and the woman appeared to be confused. Both mother and daughter were wearing red jackets. I don't want to say matching red jackets so we can get into that level of detail. Uh, now, the manager was suspicious. He didn't initially want to let them enter the building. and didn't really know why they were there. And so he stopped them, and he asked, the, he asked the mom where they were going. And she told him they were looking for a friend, and then they kind of just skirted past him real quick and then dashed into the elevator. Now, he never did see the two of them leave the building. And so he suspected that maybe Miss Liu had entered the building to commit suicide. And so he checked the security cameras throughout the building. Now, what he found on the footage is kind of what makes this case really strange and kind of makes it sync up a little bit with the Eliza Lamb story. According to the footage he found, Miss Liu had entered the elevator and she looked very frightened and nervous. When the elevator doors shut, she like as soon as they were closed, like she suddenly removed her jacket and took her daughter's jacket off and threw them on the floor of the elevator. Then they were both removed their shoes. Like She took her shoes off and then she took her daughter's shoes off. And again, threw them on the floor of the elevator and left them there. When the door opened on the 11th floor, she kind of looked out nervously at first, and then grabbed her daughter, and they both walked out of the, the elevator really quickly out of sight of the camera.
1: Barefoot and without
0: their coats. Barefoot and without their coats, which, like I said, they had left behind. Now, he suspected that she had come here to jump from the building, and, and so he contacted the police. The the building manager did. Uh, after reviewing the footage, the police believed that he was probably right, so they immediately searched around the building, around the outside. Dozens of officers were mobilized, but there was no trace of them found outside the building anywhere. So if they had jumped from the building, they wouldn't have, you know, they wouldn't have been very far. They would have right. been right there. During that time, police were also questioning anyone who entered and exited the building, and yet none had seen the, the woman or her daughter. And so officials thought, well, maybe she's changed her mind at some point. And so maybe had decided to commit suicide by alternative route. Their, their thought is that still that she had, she had killed herself. And so they widened their search to include the inside of the building as well. They even checked the water tank
1: on the roof. Yeah, right uptown with uh, the other story.
0: Still, they found no trace of either the mother or the daughter. Now, after the story hit the, the news, a man who claimed to be Mrs. Liu's husband came forward. He said they had four children and had been separated for a year. Apparently, he was alcoholic. Their marriage was not great. He, uh, their relationship was potentially abusive. But apparently, he would drink, they would have these really horrific arguments, and so, you know, they were separated. He said that she was raising the four children, he paid child support, and when she left home, she told her oldest daughter, who at that time was in the sixth grade, that she was taking the youngest daughter to go stay with relatives for a few days. Now, with little to go on, they closed this case after 10 years. At that point, Mrs. Liu's eldest daughter came forward, and she spoke to the media again and said that her mother was a very religious person. And, of course, this led to some theories that were related to the supernatural. In Taiwan, apparently, they believe that the color red attracts ghosts and spirits. So, you know, you have that, possibly. Hmm. So the two of them wearing red in the middle of the night, you know, is kind of a strange detail for this story based on their cultural beliefs. But then they shunned those jackets, left them in in the elevator. Now, since then, this building has become infamous, famous, however you want to phrase it with a lot of locals saying that the building itself brings bad luck since no business has been able to thrive in that building since.
1: Well, that kind of goes back again to the, uh, the Hotel Cecil. Yeah. Uh, that episode was number 42 that we were talking about that had similarities, that, that possibly the hotel itself was causing some of the paranormal activity.
0: Yep. Now, I'm going to move on to the story of Vladimir Bastille, And again, forgive me, these are names from Czechoslovakia, I believe. So I'm going to get some of these wrong too. But Vladimir worked as a handyman in the village of Krahulov. That rolls off the tongue nicely. At 3 a.m. on January 14th in 1999, Vladimir woke up and he walked to Krahulov to work, just like he did every other day. Now, the snow had just begun to fall, and Vladimir walked the same route he took every day. And he usually walked along the Czech motorway, I-23, and this, this word is from the village he lived in, which was "Shech maybe? You did better than I would have. And, and he walked to Crow who love. Now, four witnesses said they had seen him walking along the road. And then, uh, well, a couple hours later, another worker noticed that Vladimir had not yet arrived at work. And she noted that the building he was meant to make repairs on had was, still seemed to be deserted. All the lights were off and there was no sign that Vladimir had ever been there. So she called the boss and said, hey, you know, Vlad's never showed up. He's obviously never been to work. So the boss heads over to Vladimir's home to check on him, which... Seems really nice. He, he got to Vladimir's home, and he found Vladimir's unfinished breakfast and an unfinished cup of coffee on the table. And Vladimir's dog was there, and the dog seemed to be irritated. I mean, there was something going on. The dog was not quite, you know, action, right. So he let the dog off the leash, hoping that, the, you know, the dog would go and find Vladimir. Now, the dog did take off down the road, followed the same trail that Vladimir would have followed walking to work. And his boss, you know, was walking around. He saw Vlad's footprints in the snow. And then found a place where the footprints abruptly stopped. Here we go again. When the dog got to this spot where, where Vladimir's footprints ended, it began to behave strangely. It was kind of cringing, it was growling, it's barking. You know, like even the dog kind of was like, "Hey, something weird's going on." Uh, the dog refused to leave that area, and eventually, Vladimir's boss had to pick up the dog and just carry him back to the village. The dog would not come of its own accord, so he had to bring the dog back to the village. The next day, the police were contacted, and a search effort was undertaken. I'm not going to try to say the name of the village again, but residents of the village that Vladimir lived in, as well as the town where he went to work, jumped in. They wanted to help the police. Vladimir's relatives joined the search. Everybody's trying to find, find him. You know, Firefighters in the Czech army searched in the surrounding area and the forest locally. There was even a pond not too far away, Steckley Pond. Uh, they searched it, dredged the bottom of it, just in case Vladimir had somehow stumbled into the pond and drowned. No evidence of Vladimir was ever found, and eventually they called the search off. Now, in the spring when the snows melted, they they undertook another search effort, hoping to maybe find his body. Still no sign of Vladimir. Uh, Now, the official position of the police is that someone had hit Vladimir with their vehicle while driving down the road, and then threw his body in the car with the idea that they would dispose of it somewhere else. Oh, wow. I I mean, that seems I, 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 I don't know if that's normal for their part of the world, but I mean, around here, if you hit someone with your car, you're definitely not supposed to bundle up the body and go dispose of it.
1: We did have an incident of that oh, on uh, Interstate I-44 yeah, not happens. so long ago.
0: Now, there are those who consider the possibility of a supernatural explanation and even possibly alien abduction. Obviously, this, these suspicions do originate from the, very, the, the, the number of oddities of this case, such as the tracks and the, and the snow suddenly disappearing, the lack of any signs of vehicle collision to corroborate the police theory. I mean, the, the people who believe in the supernatural think that the most compelling argument, of course, is the bizarre behavior of animals in the village. Of course, Vladimir's own dog,
1: who behaved very strangely upon reaching the end of the trail, and its refusal to leave the area. Now, let me ask a question on that. In your research, we, we talked about the Alaska and the, and the footprints there disappearing. Was it like the area? melted or was scooped away and that's why the prints ended? Or did, were you led to believe that literally well, yeah, it, it was, was just like somebody just went whoop, and winter just vanished?
0: Time. Yeah, it was still winter time, so there's no reason to believe that the footprints would have melted at that point. This was early January.
1: Okay. So, no, it, it so was just like footprints yeah, that like just, someone just yanked,
0: them stopped and, right off the planet. Yeah,
1: sucked them up in a UFO or whatever and took yeah. them away.
0: But going back to talking about the dogs, three days after his disappearance, his dog also suddenly disappeared without warning and for seemingly no reason. But Vladimir's dog was not the only dog to behave strangely in the village. According to residents and other first-hand accounts, every dog in the village, at the same time, no matter where they were, would begin to bark non-stop, which was, of course, unusual. And the barking would last for a long time, and the villagers described the sound as somehow different. And then it would stop suddenly. And this all started shortly after Vladimir's disappearance. Now, again, potential explanations. There was even a Czech newspaper article written at the time entitled, he was kidnapped by a UFO. I mean, nobody said there were UFOs in the area. Again, there's...
1: Nobody spotted nobody anything. Yeah.
0: Now, some people do lean into a more supernatural possibility. Uh, some suggest that he may have encountered a time gate. So... Portal, wormhole. Vlad might have inadvertently become a time traveler. Or possibly stepped into another dimension. Again, alternate dimensions. You know, the multiverse theory is very popular these days. Now, his case is still considered to be open by Czech police. But there have been no updates in over 23 years. Hmm. So Vlad there is just walking to work one day and poof, gone. Maybe the dog went back and poofed the same yeah. way. Who knows? Yeah, the dog, you know, when the dog disappeared strangely. But the behavior
1: of the dogs in the village seems to indicate that there was definitely something going on. High-pitched sound, like dog whistles or something along those lines. Maybe really.
0: interdimensional portholes
1: make a dog whistle noise when they open.
0: Hmm. But yeah, there. I mean... Again, that's another one where
1: footprints in the snow just Just vanish. All right. Well, I've got another one, uh, another story. This is the story of Judy Eldridge, uh, a 50-year-old woman who vanished from, we're going to say Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. And when I get into the story, you'll understand why it worked that way. I mean... I mean, just kind of leave you hanging there. Yeah, yeah. yeah
0: I need to know what, what you mean
1: here. Yeah. Well, in September of 1996, Judy was the happiest she had been in years, living through two failed marriages, raising two small children, struggling most of her adult life. However, now at the age of 50, she had met and fell in love with her soulmate, her third husband, a successful attorney named Jeffrey Smith. Now, the lovebirds were slated to attend a law conference in Philly, or I should say her husband was slated to attend the law conference uh, in April of that year. And while the primary trip was to allow Jeffrey to attend that, they agreed they would escape and take advantage of a few extra days. There, they planned on spending some time together, possibly even doing some camping and hiking. However, I will say Jeffrey was not a healthy man. I will also say he was a... And this is in his family's words: a grossly obese man, not the perfect candidate for hiking.
0: Time frame wise, what what when, when did you say
1: this was? Uh,
0: nineteen ninety six. Okay, I was gonna say if it was an older time frame, grossly obese had a different definition than it does these
1: days. So he was a big guy. He is a big old boy. Yeah, hiking's not easy when you're that big. Yeah, I would I wouldn't think so. But nobody really touched upon that in the story. But it just seemed to be the elephant in the room. So I wanted to address that. Whoa, Eric, that was... I'm sorry, I'm sorry, elephant in the room. (laughs) That sounded horrible. (laughs) The two had dated for 10 years prior to the wedding. Together, they had met as Judy was working for Jeffrey's ailing health father, uh, living kind of as an in-home nurse. It had been love at first sight. Jeffrey was smitten by Judy because he himself had also struggled with the obesity that had mentioned most of his adult life and he was happy to land such a catch. Judy was ecstatic with Jeffrey's kind heart and the fact that together Jeffrey would adopt her two children and help provide a better life for all three of them as well. But bad luck was on their heels. First off, as they left the airport for Philly, Judy had arrived there and discovered she accidentally left her identification at the house so was unable to board the plane. They talked it over and they decided to keep Jeffrey on schedule and not missing his conference. Jeffrey would go ahead and fly ahead, Judy would in turn run back home, grab the necessary identification, come back and catch a plane, and they would meet in the city later that night, which they did. The two were said to have had supper together that night, and then they retired to their room. Jeffrey would return to the conference the the following morning, and Judy stated that uh, she was happy to explore the Philadelphia area while he was attending as they both were getting dressed and left about the same time. She said she had wanted to take in many of the sites, including, but not just limited, to the Liberty Bell. However, this is where things start getting a bit weird. Judy and Jeffrey were to meet back up that second night at about 5 p.m. there at the hotel, where they had planned to meet some friends from out of town and go out for a night on the town. Now, Jeffrey had run just a little bit late, arriving at 5.30, about 30 minutes after what they had originally agreed upon. But there was no sign of Judy at the hotel. He learned there was a small party uh, going on downstairs and even went there to see if by chance possibly Judy had uh, met someone and went to the bar and maybe lost track of time. But no one, none of the hotel staff or other customers stated they remembered seeing a woman matching Judy's description in the hotel at all that day. Now Jeffrey described how his wife was dressed that morning and stated that she took, as she always did, a red backpack. She always wore this backpack instead of using a purse she felt it was safer and easier to keep track of. But Judy had somehow just vanished. Police questioned and reviewed some of the video footage at some of the locations that she had mentioned she planned to visit, including the Liberty Bell. But nothing. She did not show up on any of the video camera surveillance. Jeffrey himself became a suspect. Like in so many cases with disappearances and or possibly murder, of the time, the victim met foul play by a spouse or an ex. This did not set well with Jeffrey, and even when the police came, he refused to take a lie detector, which the police said would have smoothed things out a bit and allowed them to move on. Now, this added interest to him uh, by the police as even more of a prime suspect. Now, police interviewed hotel and restaurant staff, reporting that, again, no one anywhere had actually seen Jeffrey with his wife or any other woman, nor had they seen her at all. The restaurant in which they were alleged to have eaten at the night before did not remember seeing either of them. So had Judy ever actually arrived in Philadelphia? Could she have met foul play before boarding the plane at all, and possibly was Jeffrey trying to cover something up? However, friends and families from both sides were quick to defend husband Jeffrey all stating the two were madly in love and neither would have been capable of doing something heinous one to the other. Jeffrey's family even went as far to point out Jeffrey's own poor health and his obesity versus Judy, who was much better in a healthier physical state, and said if Jeffrey had tried anything, she would have been able to easily fend him off or outrun him or get away. So finally, he was somewhat dismissed with Really, zero real evidence uh, or motive to claim that he was involved. Now, hotel staff helped with that when several of them finally, reluctantly came forward and said, yeah, we had seen Judy. We originally said we didn't. They also showed video footage of Judy at the hotel.
0: Why would they do that? Like, I would assume hotel staff have nothing to gain by lying.
1: Well, in one instance in the video, Judy was spotted inappropriately touching herself out in the hotel hallway and approaching several people, somewhat out of her mind, possibly on drugs or under the influence. It gets even worse. At one point, she was spotted running naked down the hallway where she ran out the front door and sat greeting people at the hotel, propositioning them. Nothing
0: like that's ever happened in my life.
1: (laughs) Like, I know I'm married now, but
0: when I was younger, that would
1: have. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Well, the staff came forward somewhat ashamed and said, there was kind of this weird deal that they do. And every week with everybody that stayed at the hotel, they, they picked out and and labeled the weirdo of the week. And Judy had been declared the weirdo of the week. So they were a bit embarrassed to come forward but uh, it's with a this. police investigation. Exactly. That that is not the time to feel, you know, to guilty and um yeah, anyhow. The police continued to investigate now with the staff coming forward, but they did find it was very odd in the hotel room where the couple was to be staying, there was only two pieces of ladies clothing found at all and both were brand new with tags unworn. There was also a very noticeable lack of, shall we say, signs of a female being in the room. No makeup, no toiletries, no toothbrush, nothing of a woman's belongings that you would expect to find in the room shared with her husband. You're you're a married man. I you're, am.
0: You've traveled with women. I have. I mean you have a daughter. Not women. No. Okay. Well, I was gonna say you you're gonna get daughter. me in trouble no, here, but I travel with one woman. I have a daughter. I we both have daughters.
1: Yes. You don't go to a hotel. Oh, without good. there being oh good lord like, they they have six eight suitcases
0: well and, and the countertop is covered with things. I yes mean, everything yeah makeup and soaps and lotions and things
1: yeah, yeah none of that was found which seemed more than a bit odd well and especially
0: i say she was younger and in in, in good shape and everything she took care of herself she would probably it was concerned with appearance, you know, wanted to look good. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, you're going to have stuff
1: there. At the very least, you're going to have clothing, a suitcase. Well, yeah, at the very least. At the very least. But the case then kind of just got cold. There was really nothing new to report. That is until about five months after her disappearance. A father and son team were out hunting in Pisgah National Forest in North Carolina. Notice I did tell you in the beginning, we're going to assume Philadelphia there they had discovered a grisly sight, a shallow grave with the remains of a female body now exposed due to the elements and what appeared to be several animals digging up and eating upon them. She had been wrapped in a blanket and buried in this shallow grave. Now the coroner was unambuled to assess the exact cause of death because at this point it was pretty much all skeletal. But there were several stab wounds in the chest cavity as shown with holes in a bra that the skeletal remains was still wearing. The body was also found to be dressed in new hiking clothing gear, including thermal underwear, socks, and everything. And she was buried with a blue backpack. Notice, in early on, she always used a red backpack. In the surrounding area around the shallow grave, a diamond ring was found and also $200 cash was uncovered. So, obviously, the motive did not seem to be robbery. The remains were sent for testing and confirmed that that over 600 miles away from Philly, somehow this, in fact, was the remains of Judy Eldridge. However, her husband Jeffrey stated he had never seen the hiking clothes that she was buried with, and they were believed to have been purchased brand new. Also the fact that I had mentioned there was a blue backpack that was not hers she'd always wore a red backpack and he remembered her leaving that day with that said red backpack the clothing was not even her size so it was Judy but possibly not in her own clothes or with her backpack that was all dressed up that that was a, a definitely sounds crime scene. like it now the diamond ring was identified by Jeffrey as belonging to his wife why would Judy go to North Carolina in the first place? Why would she leave Jeffrey in Philadelphia for such a long trip, knowing that the couple, along with friends, were to meet that night? Okay. So, with what you've said so far, she
0: was an easy target. She was clearly under the influence of something. Yes. Or, you know, that, mentally that particular impaired day. in some way. Mm-hmm. She was an easy target. Somebody grabbed her, did whatever they were going to do with her. Five months and later, then dumped her body. Well, I mean, you don't her. know when they dumped her body, right. but they found her. They doctored the crime scene. They put her in hiking gear, so they, could oh well, she was hiking and, right. and she in got a state lost. Park, yeah. I mean, clearly sense. her husband knew where she should have been, and like they said, it wasn't even her size. So six hundred miles away, and, and if robbery is not the motive, that doesn't leave a whole lot
1: of other options. Correct. Now, North Carolina police now speculated possibly she had been murdered by someone with mental illness that hunted victims for sport, and that's why her personal belongings had not been taken. In fact, there was a serial killer said to have been in the area at that time that had claimed already a couple other victims years prior in similar fashion, although there was never really again any definitive evidence that tied her to that serial killer or any other possible person now here's where it gets weird again several people came forward in the coming week stated they had seen judy nearby in Asheville, north carolina one particular account was of a retail sales clerk now she says she remembers talking with judy at the checkout and after learning about the case placed this several days after she was reported missing from philadelphia The sales clerk said she was very pleasant, well-mannered, carried on a logical conversation, quite a long one, in fact. She purchased several items there, none of which was hiking material. Uh, Sounded more of like a general store kind of deal. And she even told the clerk she was married to an attorney who was attending a convention in Philadelphia, but said, since he's busy, I decided to come down here for a few days and do some hiking.
0: Okay, so it seems like my theory was wrong.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Now, No one could come up with any reasonable reason of why Judy would do this. Jeffrey, her husband, continued to be a person of interest in the case until he himself died in 2005. But now, since he's deceased, if he was involved in any way, he took those secrets to the grave. And we have another vanishing disappearance without explanation. So we've got one last story here about
0: unexplained disappearances. That of a World War II blimp whose crew disappeared. In August of 1942, the L-8 Blimp came back from its patrol off the California coast, where it was searching for Japanese submarines. And mind you, this was near the beginning of the U.S. involvement in World War II. But when it returned, its two-person crew was no longer on board. There's a lot of unexplainables right there. Yeah. Now, the Blimp was crewed by two experienced pilots. He had Lieutenant Ernest DeWitt Cody and Ensign Charles Ellis Adams. Cody was 27 and a graduate of the Naval Academy, and Adams was 34 and had served in the Navy for more than 10 years. Now, machinist mate James Riley Hill was also on board before they took off, but Cody had instructed him right before they left to, do, to go ahead and, and stay behind, allegedly due to concerns about the extra weight. So that, that seems, you know, kind of suspicious. So on August 16th, 1942, about 6 a.m., they departed from a small airfield located on Treasure Island, an island built in the San Francisco Bay for the World's Fair. Now, during the first hour and a half of the trip, there was nothing worth noting. At about 7.50 a.m., however, the crew radioed back that they had discovered an oil slick in the water, and they believe it could be a sign there was a submarine lurking there. They reported they were going to to examine it, and this was their final communication back before they disappeared. Now, the Navy dispatched uh, search planes to locate L-8 when it failed to report back, but they did relax their search when a nearby military base reported that the blimp had landed and its pilots were safe. Seems seems reasonable, Yeah, was later reported that this information was wildly inaccurate as the blimp had actually landed on a beach about a mile away. Uh, Witnesses claimed at that point there was no one on board, and despite making efforts to restrain the blimp, it rose again into the sky and drifted off towards Daly City.
1: Yeah, as we were kind of talking earlier, I'm just imagining this giant balloon blimp just landing without anybody guiding (laughs) it and just kind of hop-skipping, jumping around. Yep. That's kind
0: of what happened. <laughs> <laughs> so, when it arrived in Daly City, uh, authorities discovered that the door to the blimp's control car was open. There was no indication of damage or fire. The radio was still functional, and the pilot's parachutes were untouched. Ooh. The blimp was missing one of its anti-submarine depth charges, though. Well, that's odd. Well, that was later found on a nearby golf course. <laughs> so, who knows how it got there. The only other items missing from the, the blimp were the pilot's life jackets. Now... That is standard protocol during these flights. So the pilots, if they were missing, the life jackets should have been missing with them. So they they would have been wearing them anyway. Now, investigations into what happened only turned up more questions. On the day in questions, the waters off San Francisco were bustling with fishing boats, Navy vessels, Coast Guard ships. There was a lot of traffic in the waters that day. So that resulted in several eyewitnesses observing the blimp's movements. Based on eyewitness accounts, the blimp released two smoke flares over the oil slick to mark it before it gained altitude. A Pan Am Clipper seaplane witnessed the blimp's flight, and a search plane later spotted it at an altitude of about 2,000 feet, which is twice as high as they normally would have been. So they were, they were way, way up there. Way up there. And then it descended back below the clouds at that point. Now, as the blimp deflated and became increasingly misshapen, hundreds of onlookers on the, on the ground followed its progress. They were watching it. Like, lots of people saw this blimp traveling. One witness said it looked like, quote, a big broken wiener. <laughs> I don't. I'm assuming he means hot dog, but who knows?
1: We bring humor to our <laughs> podcast.
0: However, as to be expected, witnesses provided conflicting reports. Some said they saw no one on board the blimp, while one particular woman who was horseback riding in the area said she saw three men on board through her binoculars. Three now, men. There's remember, only there's there were only two, two crew, and they left a guy behind, so there was only just two guys on there. Some people report observing individuals parachute from the blimp but there were still parachutes on board. The Navy conducted an extensive search of the waters off of San Francisco for several days. No trace of either man or their life jackets was ever discovered. Multiple theories have been put forward to explain what might have happened, ranging from the idea that the men had been taken captive by the Japanese, which seems really unlikely, uh, to the suggestion that they had defected or maybe even been killed by a potential stowaway. Maybe that was the third person on board. Mm. Another theory proposed they had a fatal altercation over a woman while they were up there.
1: Oh, those pesky
0: women. And some even, again, speculate they had been abducted by aliens. Of course. Now, most experts believe the men simply fell out of the blimp. Possibly one of them was outside trying to fix something, lost his balance and fell. The other man tried to help. He also fell. This is the theory that the Navy puts forward. Although they admit themselves officially, this is only a guess. They have no idea where these men went. Sounds like an
1: attempt for a cover-up to me. Could be. Bill, is it time? Is it time? It's time for our headlines.
0: So my headline is from the Kansas City Star, dated April 6, 2023. Ooh, very recent. Our episode here has been about unexplained disappearances. I thought I would talk about an unexplained appearance.
1: I like it. I like it a lot.
0: The title of the article... Kansas City and missing for 32 years, found dead in burning car in southwest Missouri. Hold on. I think I've heard this story. Yeah, you probably heard this one. <laughs> this is by Bill Lukich. Firefighters were called to a burning vehicle in a parking lot in Lebanon, Missouri, which is roughly 176 miles southeast of Kansas City. It's where we're sitting right now, just about. About eight blocks from where we sit. Yeah. And when, when they responded, they came upon a 1979 Chrysler New Yorker that was on fire. After the fire was extinguished, the charred remains of a body were found inside. An autopsy was ordered to determine cause of death and identify the remains, and DNA evidence revealed the body to be that of 71-year-old Stephen Wynn, a Kansas City man who had disappeared 32 years ago. Stephen had lived with his wife and children in Kansas City until 1991. Investigators conducted interviews, which led them to conclude that Wynn had assumed the identity of his former wife and later taken on another alias. It's not immediately clear why he did this. Investigators also traced a to an address in Camden, Missouri, which is about 30 miles from here, give or take. And there they found documents that uh, led them to believe that he had died by suicide, that this this was intentional, which has got to be a heck of a way to go. Yeah, wow. Police at the time of the writing of this article were still awaiting full results of the autopsy. Uh, And I just, I found that story weird. It immediately jumped out because, of course, you know, you find a body in a car. That's kind of big news. And that was kind of, it was a big thing around here. And then to find out that this was a guy who'd been missing for 32 years, I, I, there, there's a, a mystery there. And, and who knows, as this story unfolds, this may
1: be a full episode someday. But an unexplained appearance would definitely
0: be an, an interesting capstone to an episode about
1: disappearance. And I, I won't unravel that a whole lot, but I will say that that particular parking lot, that hotel has went out of business and has been for quite some time. But up in its latter days, it did not have a good reputation prostitution drugs chop shop not meetings in this house. yeah yeah welcome to lebanon all right well my nightmare headline is uh something i i wanted to try to make a little lighter we've had a lot of you know a lot of bad here and uh, actually as i was doing research an ad popped up on my computer and it just so happened because of course you know computers and government listen on everything to be somewhat related to what i was doing research on imagine that that's how the algorithms work out. well the history channel their store actually this year has made a new calendar available for purchase on their online shop it's a daily calendar that features 365 days with 365 individual cases of strange disappearances inexplicable events and strange phenomenons sure to bring interest to your life with mysteries unfolding for you every day everything from crystal skulls to the mysterious pirates plunder booty hidden and forgotten treasure awaiting to be found or mysterious shipwrecks that lie at the bottom of the ocean one blurb i just thought i would share here i randomly picked out february 27th monday you can imagine turning your calendar as you go to work and it says history's unexplained mysteries General Custer's Lost Treasure Though any American history buff worth their salt could tell you about the brutal slaughter known as General Custer's Last Stand, in which George Armstrong Custer foolishly led hundreds of his soldiers to their deaths at the Battle of Little Bighorn. Relatively, few know the story of the General's Treasure, which is said to remain undisturbed, buried somewhere out in the vast American West. Romantic though the notion may be, historians say there is persuasive evidence evidence that in the time leading up to the final battle, Custer was known to be carrying six months of back pay for his men in silver, gold, and banknotes, worth approximately $25,000 at the time, obviously much more in today's modern times. After his defeat and death at Little Bighorn, however, The treasure vanished, and the general consensus is that Native American warriors claimed and buried the chest with precious metals and the U.S. Treasury notes on Sioux land. Beyond this, however, no trace has yet been found, and though the scant survivors of the incident verified the existence of the treasure, none could offer any helpful clues to its potential whereabouts, and its remains are still lost to this day. So that was just a bad day for those guys. <laughs> Not only did most of them get killed, but even those that made
0: it didn't get their pay. Yeah,
1: we didn't. We ain't gonna pay you for this. Yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> horrible, horrible. Well, we hope that you have enjoyed this episode of a collage of strange disappearances and reappearances. Thanks for listening, y'all.
0: So before we get too far, I found the show on Hulu
1: called Letterkenny. Yeah. Oh yes. Oh geez hours of entertainment i that uh, <laughs> pitter patter let's get at her allegedly yep. allegedly
0: that pitter patter though man it's gotten stuck in my head let's get at her last week i had the worst cold i think actually i just think i had covid i think everything's covid now you see there's like a new version of covid that uh emulates seasonal allergies yeah what the hell in the springtime, imagine it. Uh, yeah, I'm not the kind of guy who's like downplayed COVID. You know, the early days, I was like, "Oh, we're all gonna get COVID. And yeah, die. we're all gonna die." But now I'm just like, I don't think COVID's real anymore. I just think everything's COVID. It's just well, you know,
1: early on we we talked about what happened to the common flu. Yeah, nobody has the common flu anymore. It, it's some no, coronavirus. It, it, I just
0: think everything's. I think everything's uh, corona now. I think everything's just COVID. My corona. <laughs> oh yeah. You're gonna like the outtakes on the Jack the Ripper, then.
1: Oh, I haven't got that far we, yet.
0: We sang, if you remember correctly.
1: Oh, good lord! <laughs> you got to leave that in. Right. So. Uh, it was December Eve, 1945 in Fayetteville, West Virginia. December Eve. December Christmas. How do I want to word? You could just say Christmas Eve. You
0: don't Christmas need December. Eve. Okay, but that's implied by Christmas. True. True. <laughs>
1: As they continued their own investigation, it was deducted the phone line issue. Deduced. Deduced. What did I say? Deducted. Deducted. <laughs> Jeffrey was spit. Jeffrey was spittin. Spittin. Jeffrey was smitten by spittin Judy. Judy. Spittin fire. Spittin fire.
0: Uh, firefighters were called to a burning building in a uh, burning building. <laughs> nope, I already messed that up.
1: <laughs>
0: Want to take a time to. Thank the people that helped bring this all together. Uh, Alex Tudor, you can almost call him our producer at this point. Sarah Tudor, who also helps with some of the technical stuff. I want to take a moment to extend thanks to Eric for letting us use his space to record in kind of our makeshift studio.
1: I, in turn, would like to thank Bill for, one, putting up with me and uh, <laughs> using this camaraderie to do something we both very much love and enjoy doing. And thank Bill's family for allowing him to spend all the time to work and clean up our recordings and present them in what uh, you hear in the final uh, terms, uh, the final edition, if you will. And I'd like to thank all of you for continuing
0: to, to listen. I know we've got some loyal followers out there.
1: We do this as a labor of love, but we're, we're happy that there are people that enjoy it as, hopefully as much as we do. Thank you very much.